Well, my name is Phil Cook. If you do not know, I'm the pastor of students and young adults here. Uh, Alex Gilbert, who has served in this role for a long time, is planning a church, which is called Zeal Church, and we love Zeal Church here at Grace. Yes, we do. I have the absolute blessing and privilege of taking his spot. So if you do not know me, my name is Phil. You can call me Phil. That is with one L, and that matters. So just keep that in mind when talking to me, and I will attempt to remember your name as well. Uh, how many of you were at the Christmas Eve service a couple days ago? Was that not amazing? Yes, they had a little drummer boy going at the beginning, and I don't know if you were here, but let me just tell you what I was like in my head. I was like, and I can't play the drums, okay? They did it way better than I would have, but I was into it. I was feeling it, and I hope that you were too. But uh, Christmas just passed, and what we're going to do is I want to know everything about your life, okay, right now. You're going to tell me about it. So on the count of three, I want you to shout out your favorite thing about Christmas. One, two, three. Okay. Right now what we're going to do is for those who didn't say Jesus, we're going to pray. Okay? <laughs> Dear Lord, we just pray. <laughs> I'm just playing with y'all. Obviously, Jesus is the reason for the season, but there's a lot of good things about Christmas. I want to tell you a little bit about my Christmas quick. We have an almost two-year-old where my parents at. So... Uh, it's the first year she like kind of appreciated gifts because last year she was almost one and we'd be like unwrap this and she'd be like and then walk to play with toys she already has because she didn't understand that the toy was hidden under the thing you know what I'm saying this year she kind of got it but we had to like rip it a little bit for her and then she'd get her little hand in there and be like um, but I want to show you a video <laughs> from part of our Christmas that literally has nothing to do with my message. It's just hilarious, all right? And I'm going to tell you why it's hilarious. I'm going to set the scene for you, all right? We had built, we built our little daughter. Her name's Evelyn, Evie for short. Um, any Evelyns in the house? Where are my Evelyns at? Come on, girl. Love it. And uh, we, we made this little kitchen for her, right? They bought, like, it's got, like, a checkout station and all this stuff and, like, all these shopping things and like grandparents bought way too much stuff and it all fits there or doesn't and whatever. So we built her this whole area and we were really excited to show her. But I had to keep her upstairs while mom's setting it up downstairs, right? So I'm holding her at the top of the stairs. Like I said, she's not even two yet. So she's, this is like, I'm holding her like this and this is what she looks like. <laughs> you know, because you know, she's trying to squiggle out. Didn't work. I'm so strong. And uh, I have a video of when she got down the stairs, she was upset because she wanted mama. But then there was just the most epic rejection of all time when she realized what was really going on. And I just had to show this video. So just watch this. Mama, 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 lay, 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 lay. <laughs> okay, so one. I didn't tell my wife I was going to play this video until about 15 minutes ago. She is in a onesie pajama, okay? Men, don't do that type of thing to your woman. <laughs> Two, that was epic. Literally, mama, mama, mine. Talk about being left on red, man. Yeah, that has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about today. It's just really funny. <laughs> uh, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to talk a little bit about where we're going tonight. Jesus, I just thank you for the last Sunday in 2019. I thank you for what 2019 has been, and I thank you for what 2020 will be. I thank you that no matter what happens, you are the same. Uh, we just thank you that as we go into this new year, you are still sovereign, you are still good, and we have a whole new year to come back uh, and to follow you better in 2020 than we did 2019. So I pray that these words uh, wouldn't be of me, they'd be of you, and they'd be impactful to those listening. Um, and that people in, the, in these seats right now would know they're not here by accident, they're here on purpose. And that you have that purpose for them because you created them. And you know every hair on their head and you made them intentionally no matter where they've been, no matter where they will go. That doesn't change. So we thank you for that. And all God's people said, amen. Y'all are lucky because it awakened. If I sing amen, I make them sing amen. Where are my kids? Yeah, yeah, she knows. They're like, they hate when I do it, but I do it, and they sing with me. So today we're not going to talk about Christmas. We're going to talk about habits, obviously, habits that matter. The reason I thought that this would be timely is because we're going into 2020, and in a few days, many of us will be making our what? We'll be making our New Year's resolutions. And what I want to challenge today and what I want you to be thinking of as we go through this, 
is that New Year's resolutions are a really good thing. It's really good to try to create new habits. It's really good to invest in better things and better lifestyles and all that. That's really, really good. But I think one of the problems with resolutions, specifically this idea of New Year's resolutions, is that we try to flip bad habits into good habits in a day. And, and we have a culture that thinks that's the good way to go about it. We think that that's possible. And for some, maybe. But if we're being really real, if we look at the majority of resolutions, how long do they last? If we can average them out. <laughs> some people make it a few months. Some people make it a day and a half. Some people make it two hours. You know, they wake up, I'm going to eat healthier, and then they eat an entire, like, French toast casserole for breakfast. Didn't work for me, guys. Try again next year. But I think the problem with that is that we try temporary solutions for areas we want permanent results. We try temporary solutions in areas we want permanent changes. And I think that what we, I want to lean into today is that good and godly habits are a lifestyle, not a temporary decision. So what we're going to do is we talk about habits, and I think the way we can sometimes teach habits, not necessarily here, I think we teach things excellently here, um, but sometimes when I've heard habits taught, it's taught this way. Here are habits you need to have, and, and maybe here's why they're good and how to do them. And that's how we teach them. But I can tell you from experience, especially as a, a kid growing up, when I was told what to do, what did I want to do? And guess what, people, I don't care how old or young you are, you never change. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If someone tells you what to do, your human sinful instinct is to do the dead opposite. So what I don't want to do today is just tell you habits to have. Instead, I want to teach out of a passage in Psalm and give you three points, my note takers. This is going to be structured, hopefully. And I want to just change the way you think about habits. I just want to change the way you think about habits. The reason being is if you think differently about habits, maybe you have a, a more godly mindset about habits, then you are inevitably going to pick up godly habits. Whereas if I just tell you, pray more, read your Bible more, you're going to walk and say, nothing's changing, Phil. Heard it a million times. So that's how we're going to go about that. So our passage is going to be Psalm 119. So open to that with me. Uh, verses 112 through 114. And if you have a Bible, uh, if you've got a cellular phone that has the Bible, um, it's on page Google it, and that's going to be right there, Psalm 119, verses 112 through 114. I'd love you, for you to have it up if possible, because uh, we're going to be in it the whole time. It's only three verses, but each point is based out of one of those verses, so I want you to see it. Also, uh, not super important, but I actually usually read the NIV. I loved the ESV's version of this, so I'm going to be reading out of ESV, so the wording's slightly different in some of them, uh, but that's not here nor there. So I'm going to put it up on the screens for you if you don't have your own Bible. We're going to read through that together. <clears throat> I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. I love the word incline. That's actually why, the specific that word is why I picked the ESV's version. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Inclination. So when I think of the word incline, I think you're going this way, you're flat, and you have to make an action. It's an action that puts you up like this. You incline your heart. There's an action that you have that points you upwards towards something. And the interesting thing about this idea of inclination is that it's not natural. You are not naturally inclined to perform the statutes of God forever to the end. You actually have to incline yourself to do them. And a lot of times I look around, and, and, and myself included often, and we don't see this in people, or we don't see it in our own lives, and I think some of the reasons is because we're not inclined to what God has to have or has for us. And if we're being totally real, not only do we not incline, but let's be real, we like reclined. Do we not? Raven's playing a 425 today. Kick that puppy back with a bag of popcorn and a beverage that's hopefully good for you. But we like the reclined life often more. We take the easy way out. We're just coasting. We're going to talk about this a little bit, but you can't coast up. That's for sure. So this implies that there's an inclination, that, that there's action to be had on our part. So my first point that we're going to break down is this. One degree makes all the difference. One degree makes all the difference. I want to see people writing this down so that I don't want to see so many eyes looking at me right now. <laughs> Type in your phone, you know what I'm saying? Write it down, write it on your kneecap, whatever you got to do. One degree makes all the difference. Let's break this down a little bit. Your small decisions and habits now decide your future position. So when I say one degree, 
for, for my science-y or my mathematical people out there, one degree is minimal. One degree is tiny. One degree in, in really any avenue of life is small, and, and it doesn't affect a lot of things. But what I want to say, when it comes to godly habits, one degree, one small decision, one small habit change makes an enormous difference. I want to give you a visual so that you can keep up with me. An airplane is flying. Oh, I have this on my phone. It's not on my phone, but it's fine. I don't have my phone. I take it out because if it vibrates, I get distracted. 2020, people. It's terrible. <laughs> so there's an airplane, and it's flying from Baltimore. How about D.C.? We'll do D.C. It's flying from D.C. to San Francisco. It's about 3,000 miles. It's a lot of miles. If it takes off at one degree the wrong way, it will not land in San Francisco. In fact, y'all, I relearned trigonometry for you, okay? In fact, I did a diet. This is how committed I am to this family right here. I did a diagram of the United States I cannot draw, and then I drew D.C. and drew an ugly line to San Francisco, and then I drew a triangle where my math people at. And I was like, okay, if I know that both of these are 3,000, I know the angle's one degree. I can figure out the other side. And then I realized I forgot how to do that <laughs> because school is hard. So I literally went on Google, and I was like, teach me trigonometry. Dead serious, that's what I Googled. And I relearned that I had to do, like, sine of blank over blank equals blank minus 2AB cosine 1 or something. I don't remember. I already forgot it again. School. Hashtag school. And I did the math on this, and you would be 48 miles north. If you went one degree north, you'd be 48 miles north of San Francisco. But the interesting thing about that is that as that plane takes off, by the time it reaches I don't know, like Tennessee or Kentucky, I'm not good at geography, whatever's close, it wouldn't be a big deal. That one degree wouldn't really show off quite as much. In fact, you, in some ways, might not even know you're on the wrong course. But the further you get, the further you get away from where you were supposed to be. And, and my beautiful wife, who is better at math than me, she sent me all this stuff, and, and it was like an incremental growth of one degree difference, how after a foot, you'd be .02 inches off of your your course. After a mile, you'd be like something like 900 feet off of your course. Once you got to San Francisco, you'd be 48 miles. If you did DC to DC around the world, you'd be in Boston. You'd end up in Boston. And if you had a spaceship that launched out to the moon at one degree off, by the time it was supposed to get to the moon, it'd be over 4,000 miles off. One degree. And what I want to preface that today with is that your current habits create your future position. Your current habits create the future condition of your heart. So when we grow habits, the little decisions, the day-by-day, -day, tiny little decisions that maybe we know what we should choose, but we say it's just this little thing. Or maybe it's a good habit that we choose to not do. That inevitably adds up to massive difference from where God would have had you versus where you then landed. When we grow habits that aren't of God, our heart naturally begins to separate from God. But when we grow habits that are of God, you are inclined to grow closer to God. And these decisions can either help you reach your purpose, or it can actually stray you away from your purpose. So ask yourself, in 10 years, where will your current habits have you? If God's got a plan for you, which I think anybody who has any level of faith believes that God's got a plan for me, God has a purpose for me. I might not know what that is, but I believe that. If God has a plan for you, a final destination for you, a place for you, uh, things that he wants you to be doing, because you are made for purpose, let's just make that very clear, then are your current habits getting you there? And in the current habits that you have in 10 years, where will they have you? Let me give you a few examples. Nobody picks up a bottle or something to smoke or, or a pill for the first time, thinking that in 10 years they'll be addicted to it. Nobody treats their future spouse or their current girlfriend or boyfriend or even relationships, maybe they're not in yet, maybe just the opposite gender, nobody treats them poorly expecting to get divorced in 10 years. Nobody feeds their laziness thinking that in the future it's going to be a lack of achievement and a struggle with self-worth. Nobody fuels that thinking that's going to happen. Nobody starts a friendship expecting that in the future there's going to be turmoil, bitterness, and resentment towards those friends or family. 
And when people don't invest time in, in the Bible or prayer or coming to church or being in good community, they don't expect that in 10 years they're going to have a complete lack of faith. But what you invest now, the little degrees that you invest now, make such a huge difference in the future. But little decisions now create who and where you will be later. You know what is also crazy? Is that sometimes we get stuck in this mindset of, well, and I think this is a Christian thing because I know I do it. Well, I don't have a lot of bad habits, Phil. I'm going to hit you all with something that I hope wrecks your world today. A lack of good habits is a bad habit. A lack of good habits is a bad habit. So, yeah, maybe you don't, like, drink like all the other people do. And maybe you don't go to the places you shouldn't be. And maybe you don't have the bad friends. And maybe whatever, whatever, whatever. But you do nothing worthwhile. You don't invest your time. You don't sacrifice. You don't, or maybe you just need to do more of it. Maybe that's the case. But a lack of good habits is a bad habit. And I know when I studied that, I thought that that was crazy. Let me give you, go back to the plane example. If you're on a plane, people, I don't know, who's got a fear of flying in here? Come on, just be real. We can be transparent. There's one person in the back that's like, just me. Meanwhile, half of us won't get on planes. Calling y'all out. If you were on a plane, (laughs) listen to this, y'all. If you were on a plane and the the guy came over the projector, well, everybody, we'd like to know we reached our uh, cruising altitude, and we're just going to go ahead and let off the gas for 15 minutes. What, what, what would you say? <clears throat> Be like, no, sir. <laughs> like, can I talk to him? Is there any way that I can get in there? Where's the suggestion box? I suggest that we keep the gas on and going. But I think that's what we do when we have no good habits. When maybe we, str- we, we hide from the bad habits and we say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with those. But we don't invest in people. We aren't pouring into good things in our life. We aren't investing in ourselves spiritually. And that's like taking the accelerator off the plane. And you know what the thing about taking the accelerator off the plane is? While we're not doing anything, what we don't realize is that we're going down. I said earlier that uh, sometimes we tend to coast. Like, I know I'm guilty of this. Like, sometimes I'm inclining. The little decisions, I'm killing them. I'm, I'm making them because I know they're going to yield something in the future. And then maybe I get to a place that I think is good, and I, and I take off the gas. I take off the accelerator. But then what happens inevitably is while the gas is off, I start to go down, but I don't notice it because I'm just coasting. Let me tell you something about coasting. You can't coast uphill. Show me something that ever coasted uphill. What happens when you put a ball in the middle and you tilt it down? Which way does it go? <clears throat> It goes down. There isn't like an other option. Like, well, if I blow really hard on it, like, it's a heavy ball. You can't do that. But I think often we get stuck there. I think that's one of the most common places for Christians is coasting. But the truth of being a person who takes off the gas, who isn't pushing towards what God would have for you, is that you don't coast uphill, you coast down. And the problem with coasting then, too, is that you don't notice you're going backwards until you hit the bottom. And too often I, I, I sit with people or talk with people who just are at rock bottom, and I'm like, well, man, how's your, how's your Bible time been? Not existent. How's your prayer life been? You been talking to God about any of it? I don't know. I, I tried, and I just didn't feel like I heard him. Are you around godly people who can, like, speak into it and help you? And No, I mean, when, it, when I started, kind of felt like I hit the bottom, I detached from that. And that's what happens. Does that sound familiar? It's extremely familiar because it happens all the time. It's not a secret. The devil works in the same ways. You know what I'm saying? He's just one dude doing the same stuff over and over, and it just works a lot on us because we be dumb. I be dumb. We dumb together. Often we're so distracted that we don't notice the habits causing our decline until we hit the bottom. There's this really cool model that helped me continue to learn about this, and it's called habit loops. So I'm going to throw it up there, and I'm going to talk about it. So these things called habit loops, that is a, literally a psychologically defined thing where there's four steps. Technically, there's three. I added repeat. Cue, routine, reward, repeat. And as I started thinking about any habit I have, good or bad, it goes directly by this. So let me break it down real quick. A cue is you're doing something or you're in an area or around certain people that cues you to do something meaning certain people have certain influences on you, certain media has certain influences on you, certain places or people have certain influences on you, and that cues you to do something, whatever it may be. Could be good, bad, ugly, in the middle, indifferent. It doesn't matter. You're cued to do something. Then we have a routine. When we get the cue, the psychological, biological cue, 
our brain tells us do this certain thing. So you're around those certain people, your brain, whether or not you know it, says time to do this, which is crazy. You do the thing, your brain releases something called endorphins. I was a biology major, it's like all I know. It releases endorphins, which is your pleasure hormone, and your body literally tells you this is good. It feels good, which is why sin is awesome. Don't tell, I mean, it is, guys, sin is awesome. We can't say otherwise because it feels really good. We shouldn't do it, but the devil knew if he gave us bad things that felt good, we would do the bad things because they feel good. But how, but how long do those feelings last, typically? A couple minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week. So it releases it. It tells us it's good, and then our body actually literally physically craves it. This is where addiction comes from. This is how you get addicted to things. You're around certain people. Your body says, we need to do this certain thing, and we know it'll feel good, so let's do it, and then let's do it again because it felt good. Your body claves, craves pleasure. And let's be really real. That's, that's way more than just like the, the big addictions, the things that we say, oh, they're stuck on that. that. That's as simple as my example is eating. All of us eat. I don't know about y'all, but I've challenged myself recently on overeating. When I say I challenge myself, my wife challenged me. Where are my men at? They say amen. My wife tells me stop eating all the time. <laughs> she's in here too, and she's like, amen. Stop eating, Phil. But why? I really had to think about this because I want to challenge you guys on it. I have a cue that food is comfort. Maybe for you, food is boredom. You have nothing else to do, so let's eat. Maybe it's, maybe it's leisure, meaning I'm sitting in front of a TV and I know I need to be snacking on something. That's a cue. Your body is literally telling you we're in this certain instance, so we have to do this thing. So let's stick with the eating example. So for me, guys, can I just be real with y'all? Is this a safe place for Phil? You laughed, so I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> this is really real, guys, okay? Mine is popcorn. There's a few people in this room that know that and are laughing, okay? Here's what I do. I sit in front of a movie. My wife and I don't have a TV, <laughs> and we don't have cable. So when I get in front of a movie, for me, it's a big deal. So I sit in front of a movie, and I literally have a cue. I'm not kidding you. I've noticed this because I started paying attention. Where my body's like, eat popcorn, Phil. You need it for this movie. So I'm like, I eat body. I got you. So I go get this massive thing of popcorn that costs way too much, and it's way too big. No human should ever eat this much. Well, let me tell you what Phil does. Phil eats the whole things and fills it up because it's free refills. <laughs> Guys, I'm just fiscal. Okay? And now here's where the realness gets because it's funny until there have been people, don't judge me, I can count, it takes two hands to count <laughs> how many times I have gotten home and barfed up popcorn. I'm just trying to be real. This is a safe place. Don't judge me. But this has literally happened numerous times. And when I really think about it, I watch a movie. I'm cued to eat popcorn. I eat the popcorn. It tastes great. And it makes me think the movie's better. There's rewards going off. I'm like, this movie's amazing. Really, I just like the popcorn. So I eat more popcorn. And y'all know how it goes. When you're mindlessly watching a movie, you don't even know what your hands are doing. You have no idea. So I get like 18 refills and I barf. For some reason, I repeat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I challenged myself on this, right? I was like, that's not good. That's a bad habit. That will, like, that's one degree now. What does that lead to later? That leads to bad habits of popcorn eating. That leads to being overweight. That leads to feeling like crap the next day because I woke up in the middle of the night to throw up. Literally has happened. And recently I was with my bro, Alex Gilbert. We were watching a movie. We went to a 10 o'clock showing of a movie, and it was amazing. And I... He knows this about me. He knows the popcorn thing. So I was like, dude, I got to get popcorn. He was like, you don't need that. And I was like, well, listen, bro, how about this? I do need that, but I'll just eat less. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I got to practice what I preach. I'm going to get this popcorn because I do like popcorn. Popcorn inherently is not bad. Many things we do inherently are not bad. It's what we do with them, right? Right? So I got the popcorn. I had two goals. I was like, one, I'm going to share it. I hate sharing popcorn. Two reasons. Don't put your dirty hand I don't know where you've been with that dirty hand. Don't put that up in my popcorn. And when you get popcorn, it's not just like, whoop. No, you're like. <laughs> and then you pull your hand out, you only got two pieces. I'm like, bro, you touched all of them. Okay, that's point number one. Y'all know it's real. Second point, because I like popcorn. Don't eat my popcorn. That's point number two. 
All right, so I had two goals. I was like, one, I'm going to share this popcorn. I'm going to get rid of all the phobias I got. I'm going to share this popcorn without AG. He's one of my best friends. Okay, I'm going to share that popcorn. Number two, I'm not finishing this popcorn. Literally, that was my goal. I was like, okay, I know this feels good. I know what my routine is, so I'm going to put a cap on my routine. I'm going to control that. I'm not going to let it control me. Y'all, it was so hard. This movie was so good. And I went into shovel mode. I started to feel myself do it. And I had to take the shovel out. And I had to consistently, if Alex was here, he'll be here hopefully. I kept, he, he won't even know I did this until just now. I kept going like this. Uh, I kept offering it to him. He kept eating it. Anywho, that, that is a habit loop of mine that I've recognized as a bad habit. And when we look at this, we can realize why we do things. Why you turn to that thing when you're around those certain people. And what I want to challenge is that whether the routine or bad habit is lust, whether it's laziness or apathy, whether it's a substance for you, whether it's people for you, we need to be aware of or completely avoid the cues that trigger your habit loops. The biggest part of this is the cue. If you don't know what's cueing you to bad habits, you can never change the bad habits. So we have to find what cues us to these things. We have to identify our cues in order to change the routine to create a new reward pattern. Let me give you another example. So I gave you an embarrassing example. I'm going to give you a good example so I feel better about myself. In high school, I played soccer. Where are my footy players at? Come on, y'all know it's the realist. There's nine of you. Love it. Let's put a team together. I played soccer. In high school, I was pretty decent. Here's the thing. I hated working out. I hated running. We would do these things called large laps at Dallas Town, and it was the worst. Like, literally, when we would do it, I dreaded it. It was horrible. I didn't run on my own. I only ran when I was made to run. I would never go to the gym. The gym was, like, the worst place ever to me. Because of that, because of that habit, that one-degree little thing, I, I like, didn't get better. <laughs> go figure. So I went to college, and I wanted to be great. I wanted to play, like, great D1 college. I wanted to go on and play whatever, whatever. And I had to get over the habit of hating working out. How many people here hate working out? And all the people said amen. I hated working out. I hated it. Even being an athlete, I hated it. Like, that's not actually the wrong word. Hate is the right word. We're going to talk about hate. And uh, I hated working out, so I didn't. I got into college, and I didn't make my college team. I went on and got cut. And I was like, what in the world? I'm good. And then all these dudes were running like, 11-minute two-miles. I was running like a 15-minute two-mile. I was way behind. So I looked like that dude. So what I had to do is I had to start a new habit of getting to the gym, even though I hated it. And guess what? I'm now, what, seven years later, six years later, something like that. And like I'm at the point where it has become such a habit in me that I actually feel like there's no reward if I don't go to the gym. The habit loop has been completely flipped. I took a bad habit that yielded a certain routine and gave me a certain feeling or reward or lack thereof. And I pushed my cues, got around people who would encourage me, got in places that I could do better. It created a new routine, and that routine created new rewards. I can tell you now, like when I go to the gym, I leave feeling balling. Any, any of my, now, who likes the gym? Where are my gym people at? There's less hands. <laughs> but now I genuinely enjoy it because I created a new habit loop. What is it for you? Because too often we buy the lie that our small, Daily decisions and habits don't matter, but it all starts with that one degree. That small habit or change or decision that you choose, even though it's so hard and it seems so insignificant, you choose it today knowing that in 10 years, that's going to have you in a significantly different place. It makes a massive difference later. Elbow your neighbor and say one degree makes all the difference. So weak, y'all. I come up here and bring the energy, and that's what you got for me? We're going to try again later. All right, so we're going to go on to verse 113 for my second point. So if you've got it open, uh, go ahead. And I'll actually, I'll go back, even though I wasn't going to, but I love y'all. Here you go. Verse 113 says this. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. That's the entire verse. The writer here is not saying he hates people that are double-minded. If you look up the context of this verse, it's saying that he hates double-mindedness. This is what the writer's saying. He hates this. He hates the back and forth. He's literally saying, he's using the word hate. We're going to talk about that. He, he hates the back and forth when we're here one day and here the next day. And listen, there's grace there, right, because we all go through that. But he's being so clear that he hates it. And, and, and the, the important part is that he says, but I love your law next. So we say that this book is the word of God. And we believe that, I believe that passionately, therefore we know that every word is intentional, and the way things are ordered are intentional. 
he says, first, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Meaning that there's an order to how we should hate and love things. To love the right things, often you have to learn what to hate. And we're going to talk about this a little bit because hate is not a very popular word. But here's my point. Holy hate fuels purposeful passion. I love alliteration. Lots of P's and H's. The F doesn't fit, but that's all right. Holy hate fuels purposeful passion. Hate is a super underused word in the church. Here's why. We don't like that. We like the gospel of grace and love and peace and mercy, which are absolutely central to the gospel and who Jesus is. But let me just tell you all something real quick. God hates stuff. I don't say like God dislikes things. No, no, no. The word fits. God hates things. And if we're called to be like God, therefore, there are things we should hate. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to prove it to you. But here's the other part. Passion, the word passion. In the same word, way we don't use hate enough, I think we use passion way too much. I'm so passionate about this, and I'm passionate about this. And there's passion here, and I'm passionate about those things. And I'm passionate about these people, and I'm passionate about the Ravens. And I'm definitely not passionate about the Steelers. But I'm passionate about, you know, that number one seed. You know what I'm saying? I'm passionate about that. Okay, anyways. <laughs> okay. But I think passion is a word that we tend to apply all over the place, but often in ineffective and ungodly ways. So I think hate is a word we need to use a little bit more, while passion is a word we need to use a little bit less in the correct context. Let me give you some proof uh, that God hates stuff, because some of you might have been like, what? That's not why I came to church. I came to church because God loves everything, mostly me, which he does. He loves you so much, for real, for real. All right, Proverbs 6 16 through 19. I'm just going to read this, and this is not the Phil translation. This is just what the Bible says. So here you go. There are six things the Lord hates. I could probably just stop, right? I think my point's proven. I'll read it anyways. Seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. That last one, like, oh. <laughs> the first six are like, okay, I didn't murder anybody. I try not to lie. And then it says, a person who stirs up conflict. Did the pin drop yet? The Lord hates that. Hate for the things that God hates can fuel your passion for the things that God loves. Hate for the things that God hates can actually fuel your passion for the things that God loves. Hate for godly things, meaning the things that God hates that you learn to hate, can literally be gas on the fire for you to love the things that God loves. And, and just real quick and important, you can't hate what God hates unless you love God. So until you develop a love for God and a relationship with him, which is very primary, it's first, that comes first, you can't hate the things that God hates because you don't know the guy who hates them. So we have to love God first, and he teaches us to hate the things that he hates. But to love the things that God loves, first often you have to learn to hate, to hate the things that God hates. So we're, we're going to, um, I'm going to challenge you, hopefully right now, on if you have holy hate in your life. Because I think often the answer is no. And I'm going I'm to kind of hopefully uh, display this to you. So I'm going to ask by show of hands, and just be very careful with this, because if your hand doesn't go up, we have to have a very serious conversation after this. I'm going to let Jeff do that. If you hate sex trafficking, can you put your hand in the air? It's horrible. It's a travesty. It's, it's in, in a lot of ways, a, a modern epidemic, right? Now, I don't want anyone to raise their hands for the next couple, but I hope this challenges you. So if all of us raised our hands for that, I'm going to follow up. How many of us hate porn? Don't put your hands up. Don't raise your hand. Sit in your seat. How many of us hate porn? <laughs> Woo! Love it. Little man, you are a good guy. He just asked what that is. That's so good. That's so good. That, we need that. We need that innocence. Come on. To not even know what that is. Let's go. We need more young people to not know what that is. All right. I'm going to follow up with this. For my men specifically, how many of us hate objectifying or looking at women a certain way? Here's why I ask you these questions, because I think to have a holy hate, what we do a lot of the time is we say, well, I hate these big things, but we don't hate the stuff that gets there. We objectify women. We're in the gym. We look at every woman that walks by. We stare at a screen we shouldn't look at regularly. Listen, this is no judgment because been there, done that. And in fact, in a lot of ways, still like trusting God to get me out of it. 
statistically half this room on some level of regularity watches porn. That's just the statistics. I hope that in this church body that's not true, but that's the statistics. And then how many of us hate objectifying women? As we learn to hate those things, meaning we realize that there's a big thing we claim we hate, but there's ways we get there that we really don't live like we hate. As we begin to hate them, that leads to what? Love for your future spouse. You can't claim you love your current spouse or your future spouse while you're watching that all the time. You're withholding certain love from them, whether or not you know it. You can't claim you love your spouse or your future spouse while you objectify men or women all the time when you look at them a certain way because you're stealing from your future spouse. Until we hate the proper things, we can't love the proper things. All right, let me give you another example. If you're not convinced, I'm going to convince you, y'all. With the persuasive essays, I was good at those. Here we go. By show of hands, how many of us hate broken relationships and conflict? It's horrible. It's horrible. If you got conflict with me, don't talk to me. Leave me alone. Just kidding. Come to my office. All right, don't raise your hands. How many of us hate gossip then? I said, don't raise your hands. <laughs> She's like, I hate it so much. Can I hit you with something? So often we claim to hate the outcome, but we love the process. We claim to hate relationship conflict and, and brokenness and relationships, but we never stop talking about people. You don't hate broken relationships if you talk about people all the time. You can convince yourself you do, but you don't. And guess what? If we, maybe we do hate gossip, and I pray that we do because the Bible tells us to hate that. But then we go to the next level. Do you hate negative thoughts about people? Oh, when they really get under your skin, do you hate thinking negatively about them? Do you hate that? The minute it comes in, do you start to get rid of it? Are you the person who just sits there and brews on how bad they've been to you? When realistically, they probably did nothing. Or it was very minimal. Or something that could have been handled immediately had you just talked to them. But you just brew on those thoughts. How do I know? I do it. But we can't claim we hate broken relationships if we don't hate negatively thinking about people. But then what's on the other end of that? Genuine love for other people. You cannot claim to genuinely love other people when you talk about them all the time. When you think negatively about all the time. You can't claim to hate broken relationships and then also love other people when you're living in those things. But hating that stuff leads to genuine relationships. I'm going to give you one more example. How many of us, by show of hands, hate deceit and lies? Oh, it's the worst. People, someone lies straight to your face, and then you just want to give them that right hook. Like, I know you lying. Because we hate it. So I almost right hook so hard the thing almost came off. All right, don't raise your hand. How many of us hate half-truth then? That thing where you don't want to hurt their feelings, so you kind of tell them a little bit of the truth, but not all of it. You know, your wife walks up, you be how I look today. <laughs> Honey, you look so good. I don't like them shoes, though. And your pants, I don't know. How many of us hate half-truth? And let's take the next step. How many of us hate people-pleasing? We will just do anything and everything to avoid conflict. To just feel good with whoever needs to be felt good with. We'll say whatever people need to hear to avoid any type of hard situation. That is people-pleasing. People-pleasing is half-truth. Half-truth means you don't really hate deceit or lies. Because we love the out, we say we hate the outcome, but we love the process. But when we learn to hate half-truth and learn to hate like the, the gossip and we learn to hate the people-pleasing, we learn to hate all those things, it leads to loving God's truth more than comfort. I don't care if this is going to be kind of uncomfortable because I know God's truth is more important than people-pleasing, than making you feel all right. Because you feeling good but not knowing what God has for you is not doing you any favors. We need to be people who will sit down and tell someone the truth to their face and love doing it. But we can't do that until we hate the other side of things. We're so blinded often to the outcome or what we think the outcome is because we're in love with the process. It's those little degrees. It's the little decisions day by day. Hating the little things that God hates fuels loving the big things that God loves. We need a holy hate if we want a purposeful passion. Elbow your neighbor. Do better this time and say, holy hate. Fuels purposeful passion. Yes, it does. Y'all sound good. Oh, that was my next point, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Psalm 119, 14. This is my third point. I'm going to read the verse to you. It says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. 
You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. If we want to be people who learn what that one degree is, in the tough, small decisions, we want to be people who make those better because we know that a decision now is going to impact us in 10 years. And if we want to be people who have holy hate that fuels purposeful passion because when we hate the right things, we can then love the right things, the way that we do that is we have to know where to hide. We have to know where to hide. I love what this verse says. Like, it's this challenge. It's two verses of challenge. It's actually two different psalmists. The first one, the inclination is from a psalmist that has some weird name. And then the next one is from a different psalmist that has some weird name. And the second psalmist that has some weird name says this. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Often bad habits are birthed out of bad situations, right? A lot of the time, some of our worst habits, maybe even right now that you're sitting in your seat and you still have some of these habits which grace on you because we all have them and God's constantly working on us, they're birthed out of bad situations. There might have been a really bad time in your life and because of that single bad time, there's been a habit that's lasted 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, five days, whatever it is because of a bad situation. Bad habits are often birthed out of bad situations because can anybody say amen to this? Life is hard. Life is hard. Life is hard. I'm 27. I know life is hard. So some of y'all really know life is hard. My goodness. So I'm going to do something. I want us to be on the same team here. This is a family. We say that. We actually mean that. I hope that you feel that. If you're sitting in your seat, you're a part of something. You're a part of a movement. You're a part of what God's doing. Whether this is your first time or seven millionth time, it doesn't matter, right? Because God has a purpose for you in your seat. I want us to be on the same team here. I'm going to ask a couple questions. And if it applies to you, throw your hand up, all right? First question, how many of us have lost someone close to us? Show of hands. Can you just look around real quick? Keep your hands up. Do you know you're not alone? Because he, here's what pain does. Pain isolates you. Pain lies to you that you're the only person going through it. And you have to come away from everybody. You have to recoil. You just have to absorb that pain by yourself and struggle and that's what the devil does. He lies to you that you're the only one. Let me ask another question. By show of hands, how many of us have addiction somewhere in our circles? Show of hands. Some level of addiction. Look around. You are not alone. Life is hard. And we could do it together. Another question. How many of us, if every hand doesn't go up, I swear some of y'all sleeping. How many of us have suffered severe disappointment in a person or a thing? Look around. Some of y'all necks aren't moving. Look around. <laughs> Got stiff neck over here. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. I can't look. If you, if you actually got neck problems, I'm so sorry. God bless your soul. I had a cramped neck one time. It was horrible. So honestly, God, like, you're, you are a champion. And that wasn't meant to be offensive. <laughs> okay. The point is that life is hard, but you don't do it alone. We have to know where to hide. Everybody will go through stuff. One of the most disappointing things for me at times is when someone comes to me and says, well, I've just been going through this rut, and therefore I've turned to all these things. I've created all these new habits, and none of them are good. And part of me is like, I get it. Like, there needs to be grace there because life is hard. But almost consistently the same lie that those same people are buying is that they're the only one going through it. I literally had a conversation like not a week ago with someone who, who was institutionalized because of like, it's like, like bad stuff going on. And the exact word she said to me is that you could never know what I'm feeling. People believe that lie. Do you know millions of people know what you're feeling directly? And that's not meant to be insensitive towards your situation, but if you buy the lie that you are the only person who feels what you feel, not only is one, that a lie, but two, you are inevitably gonna isolate yourself when that's never how it was meant to be. And that's what we're talking about, where we have to know where to hide. Because when the storm is raging in your life, and it will, the options are Jesus or not Jesus. That's it. The options are Jesus or something else. And so often we see people turning to something that's not Jesus, and then they, they reap the consequences of that decision, that one degree, that eventually has them over here when God wanted them over here. And then they wonder why I'm trying to tell you now. Maybe you're in that place where you're that far off already. Can I just tell you something that's the most amazing truth ever? That doesn't matter how far you've gone, God goes for the one over the 99. So if you were one degree off for the last 20 years of your life and you feel like you're over in right field, God is the God of going to get that person in right field. But we have to know where to hide when we go into these things. The reason, I just y'all need to hear this, the reason we often turn away from God 
when things are hard, when we're in a storm, is because we buy a lie that following Jesus meant there would be no storms. Following Jesus is supposed to be all good and dandy and happy. Look at Jesus' life. Did he have it all good and dandy and happy? He had it the worst. Why would we expect any different? But here's what happens. We think that Jesus was supposed to give us this lollipop land existence. And when we don't have it, we dip. We say, well, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I signed up for, so I'm out of here. And, and I think a lot of us have either done that, I've done that in my life, or know tons of people that live in that reality, right? But can I just, like, hit y'all with something? God never said that there wouldn't be storms, and he also never said that when you're in the storm that you wouldn't get wet. He never said, I'm going to be standing there with an umbrella blocking you from all the rain. Because some of us feel soaked right now. Some of us feel like we've been in a storm and it's never ending and it's awful and it's crazy. But God never said, I'm going to be there holding the umbrella. In fact, you know what our God says? Our God says, I came. You will find trouble in this world, but take heart for I have overcome it. So while you're getting soaking wet, I'm going to be arm around you soaking wet with you. That's the God that we serve. Does that excite anybody? He never said that there wouldn't be storms, but he promised us that he'd be with us in all things. That he'd be with us at all times. So if Jesus is supposed to be our hiding place, the truth is that we can choose to hide somewhere else. You have that free will. You have that choice. You can either hide in Jesus or other things. So what's your hiding place? Maybe it's a food, maybe it's a substance, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a screen, and that could just be Netflix. Maybe it's sleep, maybe it's social media. Whatever your hiding place is, we need to realize that sometimes our hiding places become our hobbies. We go to a thing so often and so repetitively, we make those one degree bad decisions that your bad habit hiding places literally become your hobby. And the ironic thing about hiding places that aren't Jesus and the things that we go to over and over and over and over again, we think that it's protecting us, but eventually it becomes a prison for us. You think it's something that you're getting away from the pain, but eventually it's gonna be your pain. And, and, and here's the absolute tough truth is that all of a sudden, the things that you were running to become worse than the things you were running from. So what's your hiding place? Is it Jesus? Is it knowing and trusting that even in the rain, he's soaking wet right next to you, or you turn to other things that you think are gonna get the job done? And the end of this verse is so beautiful, because it says, I hope in your word. We, we do it through the word of God, like you gotta be in this thing. This is what, in so many instances and series of life, is going to be right next to you. When you don't feel like God's there, when you don't feel like he's doing the miraculous things you want, how, the number of times I have dove into this and literally just opened it, and it was a verse that I needed to change my life, I, like literally I couldn't even tell you how many times that's happened. Like we have to hope in the word. It, we need to hide in Jesus. We need to know where to hide. I know where to hide. I don't always do it. But I know where to hide, and that's the start. Do you? So I'm not going to leave you hanging. The way we're going to close out is I'm not just going to give you no habits to invest in. If one degree makes all the difference. Going into 2020, I want to give you four just options on the buffet table of good habits that I think can meet people in different seasons of life that I want you to leave today picking one of those four or something that God laid on your heart to invest in. So here are the four habits. Prayer and pro proclamation is the first one. There are so many things we think God ought to do that he's told us he won't do outside of prayer. If we don't pray, we can't expect God to move. It's our means of communication to him. It's our means of requesting things from him. And he tells us that the prayers of the righteous have power. And if you know Jesus, you are therefore called righteous. Therefore, your prayers matter. The Bible doesn't say pray without ceasing for no reason. It's not always going to look like getting on your knees for 400 hours. I'm not good at that. I'm just going to be real with y'all. But you can talk to God all day long, all day long. He's always available to you. Community. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not neglect meeting as some are in the habit of doing. A lack of a good habit is a bad habit. Maybe you just need to surround yourself with better people. Maybe you have so many toxic, bad influences in your life that it just constantly drags you down and you just need to find a few friends that you're gonna think are corny and cheesy at first. When I got saved, I thought Christian people were the worst. <laughs> now they are all my best friends and I love them dearly. Maybe you just need to be in some community. Maybe you need to find a house church. Maybe you need to just be in church more regularly. Maybe you just need that one friend you can go to. A third habit to choose from is transparency. 
This is for my people who have the prayer and have the community. Maybe you got so much secret sin in your life that you're so ashamed of and that you don't want to talk to anybody about because it makes you feel vulnerable and it makes you feel weak that it has completely killed your impact, influence, and spiritual growth. The Bible literally tells us, confess your sins and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's a direct quote from James 5.16. That implies that unless you confess and ask for prayer, there will be no healing. I've had to confess hard, hard, hard things to hard, hard, hard people in my life, even as recently as five months ago, a horrible one, not telling you about it, another day. We have to be transparent, and the last one is pursuit of passion. Maybe you are transparent, maybe you have good community, maybe you pray and you proclaim things in Jesus' name, but maybe God has laid passions on your heart that you do not invest in at all. He's made you, any passion you have is from God. God is the giver of passion. Anything that lights up your fire is because God built you that way. So maybe you need to invest in it more. Maybe you've been ignoring it. Maybe it's a leap of faith you aren't willing to take. Maybe it's getting around people you don't want to be around. Maybe it's sacrificing things you aren't willing to sacrifice. And God's saying you need a habit of pursuit of passion because until you make that a habit, you're never going to get to the passions that I had, the one degree, the tiny degree. So my, my closing challenge is this. If one degree makes all the difference, and, in, and we can look in 10 years, and the habits you have now will decide who you are in 10 years. Where is your plane headed, and what's your one degree today? In 10 years from now, where are you going? Where, where are your habits going to have you end up? And what's the one degree change you can make today that's going to affect where you are in 10, 20, 30, or, or one week? Your little habits create the condition of your heart, and if that's true, what do you want your heart to look like in 2020? Do you want it to be the same? Do you like where you're at, or do you know God has more for you? And are we willing to make the tiny changes, play out the movie, where are your habits going to have you? What's the end going to look like? And let's be a body and a family at Grace Fellowship Church that invest in the small decisions knowing that the big things will come from them. I'm going to pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are so faithful. I thank you that I can look back in my life and see the conviction of your Holy Spirit in areas I didn't think need changed. But you showed me that it was the little things that made the big differences. And the only reason, the only reason I am here today doing what I'm doing is because six, seven, eight years ago, you were convicting me to make tiny changes. In, in the quiet of my room, when nobody was looking, you were speaking to me and saying, enough of this, more of this, we're done with that, we need to work on this. And, and I failed so many times, but you had grace and mercy for me every time. And I'm excited, God, for not only this family, but even myself as I invest in good things. I trust you that it is going to reap amazing things in the future. And we believe that as a body. We love you. We love you. We love you. We ask for your blessing over our lives in 2020. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Grace, would you stand and worship with us one more time?